Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. Uh, first, I want to wish everyone who celebrates a, uh, a Merry Christmas and uh, Kwanzaa blessings to you and yours if you celebrate Kwanzaa. Hanukkah fell early this year in November, but I guess a belated Happy Hanukkah to my Jewish friends. Um, I would have liked to offer a uh, happy, carefree holiday show this week, but you know, this is a country that's in a, a dangerous place right now. Barbara Walter, a political scientist at UC San Diego, not Barbara Walters, the TV interviewer, Barbara Walter, this political scientist, she recently told the Washington Post that the U.S. is now an anocracy, an, an, an anocracy, which is a word I was unfamiliar with. It means we are somewhere between a democracy and an autocratic state, anocracy. Um, Walter, I should add, serves on a CIA advisory group called the Political Instability Task Force. It monitors countries around the world. It predicts which countries are uh, at high risk for deteriorating uh, into, you know, violence or becoming failed states. And she cited a data set that this CIA panel uh, uses to come to this conclusion that we are now an anocracy. And let me quote her directly, quote, we are no longer the world's oldest continuous democracy, she writes. Um, that honor is now held by Switzerland, followed by New Zealand and then Canada. We are no longer a peer to nations like Canada, Costa Rica, and Japan, just to name a few democratic countries. Now, I would stress that we are on the bubble, right? We were, we were ranked toward the top in that, that data set as recently as uh, five or six years ago. Um, it's possible that we will see some action on uh, much needed election reforms next year. So we can maybe get back to being a democratic republic. But the big story as we end this year is the right's kind of relentless fight to entrench minority rule in this country. It is, it is, not, it is not something we can just uh, look away from. So while I would like to offer a a light holiday show. We have to focus on this stuff. And my guest this week is a he's a historian um, at Villanova University, uh, Dr. William Horn. And he um, he had a, a thread on Twitter that caught my attention at, because it, I, I thought he did a really good job of bringing several uh, apparently distinct dynamics um that are underway in this country together in a, in a, in a way that I found valuable. Like sometimes you have to step back to really get a, a good look at the big picture. Um, so not a light show, but I do have a musical theme, which is like Christmassy rock. Maybe that will lighten up the show. But I don't, I don't know. Maybe it will. Maybe it'll make you crazy. <laughs> and I also have an important piece of good. And I think, Quite surprising news, uh, really took me took me by surprise that I want to share with you. Um, you may be familiar with David Wasserman if you're a political nerd. He's the uh, House editor, that is House of Representatives editor at the Cook Political Report. Um, and he has followed the once-in-a-decade congressional redistricting process as closely as anyone else. He's a he's a number a numbers cruncher, right? He dabbles in punditry a little bit, sometimes unfortunately, but he's mostly a data a data guy. And according to Wasserman, 
the extreme Republican gerrymandering that many of us expected was going to assure them uh, control of the House of Representatives for the next eight or so years, or at least give them a a really strong uh, advantage, allow them to control the House while losing the popular vote, it looks like it isn't going to happen. Uh, That is to say, they've they have gerrymandered uh, in in red states, and so have Democrats. Uh, and it is looking like it is more or less a wash. And I, I will quote him: He, uh, David Wasserman, wrote on the current trajectory, there will actually be a few more Biden won congressional districts districts after redistricting than there are now. A few more, which is again really surprising news. And uh, I should I should offer a few caveats first. So on the current trajectory, that is doing some important work here because that this is a story that isn't settled. There are half a dozen lawsuits underway. We don't know how exactly those will pan out. Um, Wasserman also adds that, um, and again, I'll quote, there are going to be dozens of narrowly Biden won seats that are very tenuous for Dems in a rough cycle. And of course, most people expect that it will be a rough cycle for Democrats. But um, that isn't necessarily the case. That, that, that's what the historic pattern has been, and that's what the polls indicate would be the case if the midterm elections were held today. But, you know, we're in the middle of a really bad wave of COVID. Uh, a lot of people do not recognize that the economy is, is roaring back to, to health. Um, and things could look very different come November, right? I should add that right now Republicans enjoy a 1.3% percentage point advantage in uh, the congressional generic poll. So this this is the polls that ask people if they'd prefer an unnamed Democrat or an unnamed Republican to represent them in Congress. And it's a it's a key a key statistic going into mid midterms. Uh, 1.3 point, so basically a one point advantage in uh, 538's average. And that's a much, much smaller advantage than one might think, uh, given the news, and a much smaller advantage than the Democrats enjoyed in 2018. They they had a eight to 10 point advantage in that, in that metric for most of um, 2016 and 2017. So we'll see. As we said last week when we spoke with Digby, there is a danger of creating like a self-fulfilling prophecy by constantly predicting that the Democrats are going to lose big next year. We're still in a in pretty much uncharted territory with the pandemic and the Trump effect and all the rest. So um, the, the fact that the Republicans are not going to re, are appear to not be uh, redistricting themselves into a majority and have to win the election uh, is some some rare positive news and again kind of surprising and with that we're going to take a quick break uh, and then come back with uh, Dr. William Horn stay tuned Talk to me. 
Welcome back. The most important story in America today is the uh, the right's hard lurch toward conspiracism, right? It's the Alex, Alex Jonesification of the party. The Republican Party is complete. And um, authoritarian minority rule. It is not a pretty story. It is not a story I want to focus on during this holiday season. But it is a story that uh, we can't look away from, uh, those of us who care about this country. I'm joined now by William Horn, Dr. William Horn, I should say. He is a postdoctorate fellow at Villanova University, and he is the founder and editor of the Activist History Review. And he had a thread on Twitter that caught my eye because it it brought a bunch of stuff that we've talked about on this show together in a way that I think is really valuable. And, you know, they say journalists write the first draft of history, but historians sometimes have a more um, kind of bird's eye view of complicated phenomenon. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Will Horn, welcome to We've Got Issues. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really do appreciate it. So I want to go through this argument you made, again, connecting a bunch of dots. Um, But let me start with this kind of provocative uh, beginning or thesis, right? Sure. You write about teaching a grad course on white backlash. By the way, are you a critical race theory propaganda? <laughs> Never mind. Um, I, we're I guess talk. so. We're, I, I don't know. We all it depends are. on how we define that these days, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is uh, that is important. We're going to talk about that. Um, sure. But you teach this grad course on white backlash, which is the animated principle of our political divide today, I think. And you right. wrote, again, this is on Twitter. You can follow Will, by the way as I do, uh, at W-I-Horn, H-O-R-N-E. So at W-I-H-O-R-N-E. Anyway. That's it. So Will wrote, uh, and I quote, my students asked me if I thought the U.S. would descend into a civil war during the next decade. I replied that the current situation is much more bleak than that. Oof. And yeah. <laughs> And so you have this thread, and at the end, and you end the thread like this. And again, I'm going to quote, civil wars are miserable and horribly deadly, but they usually carry the potential for a better, more equitable future, unless we change course dramatically. And right away, the current white backlash leaves little room for that hope. Let me first say, um, yikes. Yikes. I think that's the right response. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I would ask you to unpack that that statement sure. again. I mean, maybe a hot civil war would be better than a cold one, which seems like where we're at. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to preface this. I think it's obvious from the, the quotes that you read, but just by stating very clearly, civil wars are very bad. Yes. They're very deadly, miserable experiences. They are not good. We should not have one. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, I I think that's clear. But, you know, based on some of the the weird, you know, right wing trolls or, you know, they clearly, you know, want to say that I think we should have a civil war. I do not. Uh, They they, they like to talk about a civil war and they like to project. Yes. So that's why that's happening. Of course. Um, Yeah. And so I think the reason that I framed it this way, you know, of course, it is a provocative framing, but I, I actually I believe the, the central argument that I make there, uh, which is that sort of a a rapid descent over the next two to four years, in other words, sort of the next couple election cycles and their immediate aftermath, the rapid descent there 
uh, during that time frame into, you know, what we are poised to see as a sort of a single party authoritarian rule um, would be absolutely devastating um, and would leave little room for, you know, based on how the GOP has passed laws at the state level, um, little room for sort of activism, little room for policy uh, or voting alternatives. Um, and and, and I, so I guess it's, it is it is a bleak um, claim, um, but it's one that is very concerning to me and one that I think uh, fundamentally is uh, unfortunately correct. Yeah, it's, it is, it is con- correct. I want to also say um, that a civil war is really hard to foresee in large part because the rural-urban divide in this country is rapidly overtaking the north-south divisions and state-by-state divisions that have long defined our political conflicts and that allowed an actual civil war to break out, right? We've talked about that on the show a little. Um, I live in New York State, but upstate from the city a little bit. And if we go an Mm. hour further away from the city, you get into Trump country and you will see Confederate flags. This is New York, right? We were not... We were not on the Confederacy, if you know your history. And you can also go to like Atlanta, Georgia or Richmond, Virginia, and find a lot of very tolerant liberal people. So that's right. The the potential for a civil war, I think, is is not great, because how do you do it between the country and the city and dense, denser places versus less dense places? And that's right. But having said that, you know, civil wars, do bring conflicts over the future of a country to the forefront and at least give a side a chance of um, reshaping uh, 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 social norms, uh, legal systems, et cetera. And our civil war, which should probably be thought of as our second civil war, right? Because so many colonists fought with the British (laughs) during the revolution. That got us a long way towards at least at least de jure equal rights with the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments to the Constitution. That was right. They were passed during the years immediately following the war, and, and those amendments would not have been possible absent the war. Um, That's right. And now, by the way, the right is trying to offer a revis- revisionist history of that period, of the Reconstruction <laughs> era. Sure. Have you caught this? Um, unfortunately, yes. I, I'm an avid reader of Du Bois, um, and so I think that's what you're referring to, right? Yes, the, yeah. the idea that... Uh, du Bois's Black Reconstruction, um, you know, gives too rosy a picture of Black Americans' activism um, or in potential for contribution to the Republic um, during the Reconstruction period. Uh, honestly, it's 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 a racist argument. Um, yes, it's it one is. that it's scholars racist. have dismissed as a racist argument, going back all the way to Du Bois. Um, and yet, of course, we can see exactly why uh, they're reviving this particular um, argument, what we in, you know, sort of Reconstruction and Civil War studies call the Dunning School argument, um, which is sort of basically that like Black Americans were unprepared, unready for for emancipation and that they that emancipating them, you know, by, you know, through the war, um, really they emancipated themselves, but, you know, emancipating them through the war, um, you know, was just the worst thing that could possibly have happened, perhaps followed only by like allowing them to vote. You know, that would just be the, the end of the world. That sort of is the Dunning view. And unfortunately, one that uh, we're seeing revived, uh, it seems like uh, in our current moment. And there's no, there's no, it's not coincidental that this uh, discredited argument is being revived. We're, we might talk about that on another show. Sure. I, think, I think we might do that. Anyway, uh, let's dig dig in here a little bit. 
Um, yeah. Anyway, let's dig in here a little bit. Um, last week on the show, we, we spoke about how the DOJ, the Department of Justice, has been reticent to hold people accountable for the violent riots at the Capitol. Mm. A week ago, we learned, or maybe I should say we gained additional evidence that Republican lawmakers, so far unnamed, were involved in some way in those actions. And I want to just listen to this uh, brief clip from um, the January 6th committee chair, uh, Benny Johnson. Let's just listen to this. Named lawmakers were in, were in, um, talked about text messages to Mark Meadows saying they were sorry that it didn't work out. Who were they? Well, uh, they were revealed to us in the information that we received from Mr. Meadows, but I can't give you the name. Are those names going to come out yet? And what? They will come out. The information we received has been quite revealing about members of Congress involved in the activities of January 6th, as well as staff. So we don't know exactly what it is, but there's there's information uh, that members of Congress and their staff were involved in the uh, what I call the insurgency of dunces. And um, more of this is going to come out uh, clearly in the beginning of next year. They're going to be holding uh, open hearings. So far, mm-hmm. at least, the only people who have faced real consequences for what was clearly, and we, we're finding out more all the time about the details of this, an attempted coup complete with a PowerPoint presentation. Right. The only people who have faced any real consequences so far are some MAGA idiots who punched cops or whatever, right, at the Capitol. From a kind of historical perspective, uh, why do you think that apparent impunity is so uh, dangerous? I mean, I I don't know. And I want to say, I don't even think you need to be a historian to figure that out, right? Like, you know, if imagine that there's a bank robbery, right? And you sort of like, I don't know, maybe like kick one robber out of the building and you let the other robbers, maybe they're colluding with people working at the bank. You let them just continue to be there, right? Like, obviously that's a terrible idea, right? But that's the situation that we find ourselves in. And historically that has happened a lot. Um, Unfortunately, uh, rich white uh, Americans, um, often, you know, white supremacist conservatives uh, in our history have managed to orchestrate coups of various kinds. I'm thinking of uh, the Liberty Place coup uh, or the Wilmington coup. Those are sort of famous examples um, where those people are allowed to you know, run free afterwards, um, well, and well, that. Well, let's not let's not go over those. What, tell us a little bit about what those of were, course. because they're not really Absolutely. well known in history. Well, unfortunately, yeah, right. Um, so, but well studied, I should add, right? Um, these are things that you know we should be talking about, like on yeah. a regular basis. We have access to that information. Um, so, the Liberty Place coup um, was in 1874 in New Orleans. Uh, where a a group, a white paramilitary group called the White League, um, created sort of a racist hysteria around rumors that there was a black league forming that was going to murder all white Louisianans. And this is actually really just revives an old enslaver fantasy, uh, paranoia, whatever you want to call it, um, that enslaved people were just on the verge of rising up against them and almost always, unfortunately, that was not the case um, because of, you know, what slavery was and, and how it how it worked. Um, and so, you know, during this uh, coup, then um, the, based on this race baiting idea that there was a black league and there was no black league, just to be very clear, um, 
the actually existing white league uh, overthrew the state government of Louisiana. Um, and they're eventually allowed a couple of days later to just sort of like essentially walk out of the building. I mean, the parallels, to be honest with you, uh, between what we see in the 1-6 uh, insurrection um, and what we saw in the Liberty Place uh, coup are deeply disturbing. Uh, the Liberty Place coup followed a disputed election where the there was a lot of sort of white supremacist um, voter suppression and things like that. Um, and the losing side, the sort of overtly uh, racist John McHenry side, refused to concede the election. They actually set up something of a shadow government. You know, and if you want to, like, get really weird into the parallels, you know, like, it's odd that, you know, we have Donald Trump sort of putting out statements, you know, from the office of the ex-president. I mean, you know, it, I, I think there are some very uh, disturbing, strong parallels. He's, I, su I suppose, doing foreign policy from, I don't know, Mar-a-Lago or whatever. Um, but, but I do think that, you know, again, we see letting people sort of walk out of the building can be incredibly dangerous. And so, you know, although that coup in 1874 failed, just as sort of in the immediate aftermath of 1-6, it has been a failure. Um, eventually, those forces who are not held accountable did wind up coming to power um, and absolutely slaughtering uh, their political opponents. It was a bloodbath, and it's terrible. Um, but that's our history. Um, and unfortunately, uh, I think we do see uh, a compelling parallel here and one uh, that I hope we can, can avoid. So... Um... I'm going to go back to your Twitter, your Twitter thread sure. here again. When you talk about this, you say, quote, white backlash movements rely on a collaboration between vigilantes and the state. Right. And this is, this is really, um, this brings up a lot of stuff that's going on right now in this country. Definitely. Uh, it was reported last week that um, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows sent out emails saying that the National Guard would be president on January 6th to, quote, protect pro-Trump people in the lead up to the U.S. Capitol, right? You talk right. about this kind of larger picture. And again, I like the way you, you um, connected various threads. Um, you write that the white, white vigilantes and state actors have long worked hand in hand. Uh, and you say this pattern defined the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests during which cops and vigilantes worked together to beat the shit out of protesters. Right. Huh. And you talk about um, Kyle Rittenhouse, who is now being uh, lionized as a hero by the right, right. including by the institutional right. Right. I, I think yeah. this is important. It's not just the fringe right. The, the, the line between the fringe and the mainstream is also increasingly blurry. But it's you know, sure. Republican politicians. He is speaking at a uh, well-funded conservative advocacy groups like uh, National Convention. Mm -hmm. um, last week, he was given a tour of the Dallas Cowboys training facility. He said he had a, a blast, the murderous little peckerwood. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's scary stuff. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think it's really interesting when you talk about this collaboration between vigilantes and the state actors in kind of preserving the status quo, you know, is that something that is that we've seen especially in response to kind of the multiracial pro-democracy mm -hmm. movements like the one that we saw last year? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and the short and unfortunate answer is yes. Um, where we've seen the most sort of, uh, we could call it interracial solidarity uh, between Black Americans and white Americans, um, or between uh, you know Americans of various uh, ethnic, uh, racial, and national groups, uh, where we've seen the most collaboration between uh, those groups and sort of resisting um, state oppressions, state violence, uh, we've seen, like, unfortunately, the absolute worst uh, and most horrendous um, backlashes against those movements. And so I'm thinking of, for example, like the, the Red Summer uh, of 1919, uh, where, you know, we know, of course, many of us know or some of us hear about um, how black Americans after World War I, most of them veterans, um, were massacred in cities across the U.S., uh, you know, from Chicago uh, to Washington, D.C., just all over the country um, in the aftermath of the war um, in sort of a, a patriotic frenzy, uh, which is which is an odd way to think about massacring Americans by Americans. Right. Um, but those white Americans viewed the, the you know, that the, the military fighting together, black and white Americans under the same flag, that this was somehow like the end of the world. This, the same thing actually happens after the War of 1898, after World War II, um, not to the scale that it does uh, in 1919. Um, and part of the reason why it happens the way it does in 1919 is because of uh, the Russian Revolution and all of sort of the red scare, red baiting that goes along with that, uh, because there really was sort of a, a vibrant um, interracial or multi-ethnic um, left movement um, in during the war, after the war. Um, there were massive strikes uh, during the, the World War I period. Um, and you saw, again, sort of black and white workers, black and white soldiers working together, walking together, picketing together. Um, and this is something that the white establishment simply uh, couldn't stand. I, I mean, you could sort of pick like any moment, right, uh, in U.S. history and where you see a white backlash movement, um, an especially virulent one. Uh, if you look closely, you will see a lot of, let's say, like brushed over or covered up um, interracial organizing. That was very much true uh, in New Orleans. That was true during the Wilmington massacre. That was an interracial party um, that the uh, that the coors um, overthrew. Uh, in 1898 in North Carolina. Um, it, in, and that was very much a response to that particular type of organizing that white supremacists uh, simply can't allow to occur. There was also a raging pandemic going on in 1919. And, um, right. and there weren't even white and black troops serving together in integrated units during that time. No. We, that did That's not right. happen between the Revolutionary War and World War II. Right. Or was it even was it even Korea? Maybe it was Korea the first time. I'm, I'm not sure. Anyway, um, we've got a lot more to talk about. I, I think we should take a just a short break, take a breather. If you need to go get a cup of coffee or whatever, and then we'll come right back and continue the conversation with Will Horn. Stay tuned. Sounds good.
Welcome back. I'm still Joshua Holland. I'm still talking to Will Horn. Um, and we we're talking about vigilantes and this other thread of what's been going on, the reaction to the Black Lives Matter protesters last year, and, and also to lockdowns and stuff like that, the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project. Oof, that's a mouthful, huh? <laughs> the Armed Conflict Location. This group called ACLED, who, that puts together data about conflicts all, the, all around the world, they found that between January 2020 and June 2021, um, there were 560 demonstrations in the United States with armed individuals, not including cops. Um, they found that roughly one out of every six demonstrations where firearms were present included reports of violent or destructive activity. When there were no firearms present, it was one out of 37. So mm -hmm. dramatically different uh, amount of violence in, in demonstrations uh, where, where they're gun-toting militias. Um, mm. They also found that during the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter protests, violence against protesters, which was much more common than violence perpetrated by protesters. This included vandalism. Right. Police were responsible for more physical interventions than in other types of protests. You talk in, in your epic kind of thread about how in the <laughs> red states, they're making it easier to get away with uh, co committing violence against protesters. Talk a little bit about right. that. Yeah, well, so in, in states uh, like Florida and Texas, uh, it's becoming easier for police to arrest protesters for the simple act of protesting. Um, but many states are also passing laws uh, that allow civilians, so non-police people, uh, to run over protesters uh, with their cars. This is sort of a newish development. Um, but again, I think uh, exemplifies this relationship between police violence or state violence. Um, and then vigilante violence, which I think, you know, tend to converge uh, in these white backlash movements and, again, make them incredibly dangerous. Can we draw a line between the backlash against the Black Lives Matter movement and the riots at the Capitol? I'm sorry? Do you think we can draw a line between the backlash that we saw against um, Black Lives Matter and the riots at the Capitol last January? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you see sort of increasing uh, mobilization among far right groups um, around the, the Black Lives Matter um, protests of 2020. Um, but I think also uh, maybe more than that, there's a, a concern uh, that's voiced. And I, I don't want to say that this is a legitimate concern, right, but that, that the protests and sort of allowing the protests to happen um, sort of embodies um, a, a failure on the part of the state to protect uh, its citizens. And, and I think sort of it isn't a, a, a hop, skip and a jump away. Uh, it isn't you know great leap uh, for uh, many of these far right activists to come to the conclusion that if the state won't protect them from you know violent protesters, and again, these were not violent protesters, um, almost overwhelmingly. Um, but, uh, you know, if the state won't protect them in that respect, then, you know, can they, you know, trust the state's electoral systems? Uh, I think many of them maybe uh, to varying degrees, you know, buy into these ideas about uh, electoral fraud. But you have sort of the same groups, right, tuning in to sort of the same uh YouTube channels and, you know, uh, conspiracy websites and, and places like that. And I don't want to name them here, uh, but I think we all know who we're talking about. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and uh, tuning into those same places uh, for the same types of misinformation all around this idea that black political activity, um, whether it's out in the streets in a, in a form of protest against police brutality, seems fairly legitimate, right? Um, you know, black political activity in that venue is just as illegitimate for these thinkers um, as black political activity uh, in the voting booth. And so it's it's no accident, right, that the places that uh, Donald Trump wanted to stop the count, um, you know, like I live just outside of Philly, right? That's one of the places. Um, and I, I love Philly. They, um, I don't know if people caught this elsewhere, but it was in our, uh, you know, local media and coverage and all of that, uh, you know, people with uh, the Count Dracula or whatever, and the, you know, they made up a song about stopping the count. It was fun. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, I think these are, uh, unfortunately, uh, many of them the same actor, actors who are taking cues uh, from many of the same bad actors uh, in media. Now, they say, they say um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it echoes. Is that, is that the way it goes? That's, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so Tucker Carlson has recently been trying to portray the January 6th uh, riots as a false flag operation, I guess you'd call it, um, mm -hmm. designed to uh, justify suppression of uh, patriotic conservatives. What do people mean when they talk about the lost cause narrative? And do, do you see that echoed in this kind of attempt to revise what happened on January 6th? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think most of the time uh, when we're talking about the lost cause narrative, we're talking about um, sort of the Dunning School ideas that we were talking about earlier with Reconstruction. Um, and so the basic idea there um, is that uh, black Americans are, you know, inherently unequal and not fit to be full citizens. Um, and that anything um, sort of granting them power must be um, kind of an attempt by nefarious forces um, to undermine their poor white victims, right? And so in the lost cause narrative, um, it's white Southerners. Um, and I grew up hearing this, by the way, I'm from New Orleans, and I heard, you know, plenty of lost cause uh, sob stories. Um, and it, it's mostly uh, white mythology and bullshit, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, when you sort of put that aside alongside Carlson, I think that's a really interesting comparison uh, because, you know, again, what you have here is, you know, this insinuation that these political actors are illegitimate, right? That there must be machinations, uh, people behind the scenes pulling the strings because, you know, of course, they don't believe that, like, you know, Black Americans can, I don't know, desire to protest on their own, right? Or desire to vote on their own. Uh, that's a very old idea, actually. It goes, like, back even uh, before the end of slavery. That was sort of a pro-slavery um, paranoia. Um, but yeah, I, I do think, you know, we can draw some, some strong parallels uh, between Carlson's rhetoric and this very old strain of white victimhood. Yeah. So uh, let's connect another dot here. Um, you know, if you look at conservatism, modern conservatism, it, it is it is a culture war. And if you take away the culture war, what you have is, um, you know, be, beyond cultural identities and stuff like that, what you have is basically a party that is, uh, from a policy perspective, is into passing tax cuts for wealthy people, deregulating mm -hmm. businesses, opposing action on climate change, opposing uh, 
popular gun control policies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, how do you think the right's difficulties in appealing to a majority coalition with its policy preferences or its perceived difficulties, I should say, how does that connect to all of this? That's a great question. Um, and I think what undergirds um, a lot of this is a desire to cut benefits for people who aren't like us from their perspective, right? So people who aren't, you know, as, as they would put it, quote unquote, like the real America, right? Um, and so the idea, you know, with tax cuts for the wealthy, this is an incredibly unpopular idea. Um, I think taxing the rich is like, has a 60 or 70% approval rate. I'm not sure off the top of my head, but it's very high, right? Um, and so this is a really unpopular policy preference, um, but I think it shows sort of the elite orientation of the Republican Party as it exists today um, and its desire to cut social services, uh, to cut benefits um, for everyone, but uh, to sort of point to a, a racial or gendered or ethnic other right? Um, a migrant other, perhaps, uh, depending upon when and who uh, we're talking about, um, to justify cutting social services uh, by pointing to those people who are not those, quote unquote, real Americans, that somehow they're uh, getting ahead at the expense of these real Americans. And I think that's really where the culture war issues um, intersect with this sort of elitist idea uh, that we should have some kind of like oligarchy where corporations run rampant and, you know, destroy our landscape and, you know, make our lives unlivable. I mean, it is rather absurd, isn't it? The idea that like, you know, we're going to have working people not be able to earn a living wage and, and thus, you know, but also not receive benefits. I mean, like in some respects, it, it sort of creates like a literally unlivable, impossible future. One in which like people can't actually consume the very goods that these sort of corporate overlords are, are, uh, are peddling uh, before us. Um, but I think it's a, it's a very uh, boomer bust sort of uh, short term thinking uh, way of, of doing politics and, and one that is obviously uh, very elitist in nature. But I do think it's one that intersects, um, unfortunately, uh, with these sort of white supremacist culture war issues. And of course, just on a practical level with what, what's going on right now, you know, it, this is this is the the central motivation for um, the extreme gerrymandering that we've seen, the rash sure. of new uh, voter suppression measures, make it, issue issue after issue. Laws are being spun all over this country, uh, making it harder to vote, giving local election officials more power to overturn the results of popular elections. Um, the right has also undertaken a concerted campaign to hound uh, neutral election officials or professional election officials out of their jobs and replace them with people who would go along with um, Donald Trump's coup in 2020, etc., right. uh, etc. Et if you feel that you can win a majority coalition through persuasion, through uh, superior policies, you don't need to do that. You don't need to capture the courts. Etc. That's exactly right. This, this is this is really a, a central piece of this whole picture. And now, a, a final piece of this puzzle we talked about it a little bit earlier is this freak out ostensibly, ostensibly over critical race theory. And I want to stress <laughs> sure. that it has nothing to do with actual critical race theory. Right. Um, but there is a fierce and very overt propaganda campaign that describes 
virtually any discussion of racism as critical race theory or CRT. Um, there was a bill recently filed in Oklahoma, one of many like it, that would actually require teachers to lie about history. I, I mean, I mean that very literally. Like it, it requires teachers to say it, it bans teachers from suggesting that one race was the unique oppressor in the institution of slavery. Like who knows who was holding slaves? It bars teachers from teaching that another race is the unique victim in the institution of slavery. This dovetails right. with the common false talking point that the <clears throat> Irish were also sure. enslaved in America, whatever. Yeah. And um, they, it also bars people from saying that America in general had more slavery, had slavery more extensively and for a later period of time than other nations. And these things are just objectively, ob I mean, you know, these are objective truths, historic truths. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's really shocking. And by the way, this bill would apply to college professors as well as K-12 teachers, college professors, I think, in publicly uh, funded institutions. Then last week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis introduced an anti-CRT bill. He called it the Stop Woke Act. Stop Woke right. Act. Uh, <laughs> he introduced that with Chris Rufo, who, again, has been this operative, right, who has been very open about creating this propaganda campaign. Who, who is Chris Rufo? Um, a terrible person. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a far right activist. Um, and I guess he's sort of the one who uh, came up with this idea that we can just start labeling um, everything CRT. And I, I think one of the sort of uh, important quotes uh, about that is, you know, he said at, you know, one of these uh, conservative conferences that he wants everything to be CRT, right? Everything Oh, yeah, great. I have a quote here right here. Sure. He said this on Twitter. Okay. And, and this is the thing that I find so stunning. It's like, we pretend that there's a real issue here when this guy is saying this shit on Twitter. Right. Quote, we have successfully frozen their brand, critical race theory, into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We all will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under right. that brand category. Yeah. Woo. Yep. <laughs> so, Great. well, we've talked about all of these different things. Yeah. How does that movement play into this very precarious moment in American history? And can you bring all of it together for us? Sure. Um, yeah. Well, and I think the critical race theory, again, and as sort of we're thinking about the revival of this Dunning School lost cause idea that white people are, are the victims of this secret trick to try and allow black Americans to function as equals, right? Like um, the critiquing of the critiques uh, in critical race theory uh, is, is very much tied to this, this ambition, this idea uh, that in fact, the, the, the best and most just order of things is to have this white supremacist racial hierarchy. And so anything that critiques the white supremacist racial hierarchy um, or its various expressions um, uh, whether it's with sort of literal critical race theory uh, in the legal landscape, uh, where, or if we're talking about sort of the Rufo um, radical right-wing activist uh, CRT, um, which essentially means like anything having to do with racism and things that happened, um, you know, then then what we have here is in fact an aversion to to dealing with the world as it exists. Um, and and I want to also just touch on this. Uh, what is it, the Stop Woke uh, bill, um, which revives this really terrible logic. And it, it's something I want to talk about uh, 
more as, as I continue to write about this stuff of the, the Cruikshank um, ruling uh, during Reconstruction, uh, which argued that in fact, um, and this is a Supreme Court ruling, uh, argued that in fact, uh, the Supreme Court uh, and the federal government uh, could not enforce the Bill of Rights um, so long as it wasn't violated by states. If it's violated by private individuals, then that's just totally fine, right? And so like my ability to like, you know, enjoy the protections of the First Amendment, um, you know, free speech, right? Those can be limited, um, it, you know, under the, the logic of this Crookshanks ruling um, and the, the, uh, the stop woke uh, bill that applies it, um, you know, by individual people um, either suing me uh, or, or during reconstruction, um, murdering people, right? This is very, very dangerous. Um, and I want to suggest like, you know, this, I, I saw, you know, Gavin Newsom sort of revived some of this logic uh, with his, um, you can sue uh, gun manufacturers, executive order or whatever. This is a really terrible idea that absolutely 100% almost certainly will backfire because the prevailing legal precedent uh, between, you know, the 1870s and the 1960s is Cruikshank. Um, and reviving that um, and really rigorously reviving that means undoing like almost all of the civil rights gains of the 1960s. This is a poison pill. Um, and it's one that Newsom uh, has taken. And it's one uh, that unfortunately I think we're going to see uh, start to spread. Well, so just for listeners that don't pay super close attention to this stuff, um, we spoke a couple of weeks ago about the Texas bill, the, it bans abortions, and instead of the way they got around Roe v. Wade um, and other super precedents about abortion is I said, okay, well, the state is not involved in this. Just regular citizens can sue anybody who performs an abortion or helps right. somebody get an abortion. And so Gavin Newsom said, well, if you're going to do this, then we'll talk about doing this with guns. I think that was actually, I saw that as a shot across the bow mm. um, of the Supreme Court to say, like, sure. this enforcement me mechanism, this can go back against you. Right. Um, but it, it is it is a really, um, a really di difficult, uh, it, it is a, a path we don't want to go down. And also, a lot of these things had not been codified to, uh, to, be affected at, at, to um, a lot of these civil liberties had at that point not been codified to apply to say like municipalities yeah. and right. you know, it was literally just states. Um, yeah, and I want to add, if it's okay, I, I just want to add like I I sort of understand I think the logic of what Newsom is trying to do here. Um, I just think based on the the legal precedent um, and based also you know just to be blunt uh, on the bad faith court that we have. Yeah. Um, this is almost certainly going to backfire. Um, but I think um, sort of engaging in this or on this with this particular tactic, right, the Cruikshank tactic, which is really what it is, right, um, that that allows it to proliferate, right? Because now we have sort of, okay, governing by trolling, right? Like, I, I think this is a really, I understand the logic and I understand there's sort of an embedded attempt probably to sort of facilitate a challenge, right, to the uh, to the Texas uh, you know, anti-abortion law. Um, but I think like the risk there is is enormous. Um, and it's one that, you know, the far right court that we have, um, I, I I just wouldn't want to take that risk in front of that court. I think that's incredibly dangerous. Yeah, well, uh, we're getting a little off. off no, that's fine. Yeah, I'm I just sorry. Want, I just want to say like, um, 
you know, when we talk to uh, abortion experts, many of them expect that the court is going to strike down Roe. Right. And it is also going to strike down that particular provision of the Texas bill. Sure. So we will see. But that, that is, I think, the consensus view of a lot of Supreme Court analysts who who follow the, the issue of abortion specifically. They say, we do expect them to strike down Roe. Uh, with the with the Mississippi abortion ban, a fifteen week abortion ban, but we we also don't expect them to uphold the enforcement mechanism of that Texas thing. I guess we're going far afield. So let's of course let's come back to where we were. Sure, we've talked about how all of these elements from you know voter suppression and allying with vigilantes and. Um, making it easier to punish protesters come together. So do you see all of these various elements that we've talked about as part of a coherent plan? Sure. Or, or, or as a sequence of like reactions that happen to dovetail or reinforce each other? Or is that a I false mean, choice? No, perhaps. Um, I, and I, I would say, like, these are happening across the country in state legislatures. Granted, there's a lot of uh, conservative uh, organizing, both in terms of, like, bill farming, um, but also, you know, at the various far-right, um, you know, political conferences and things like that. Um, but I think it is probably fair to say that there that this is a concerted effort uh, because we're seeing, um, you know, legislation uh, making it more difficult to vote. You know, legislation making it more difficult to protest, legislation making it more dangerous to protest um, all across the country, all at the same time uh, that we're seeing, as you noted earlier, um, you know, uh, various bills and, and measures and redistricting uh, that would, um, you know, gerrymander uh, the and, and already heavily <laughs> gerrymandered uh, electoral map, both uh, at the state level and then also congressionally. Um, and so what we have here then is, is a system that is sort of like rigged before you ever like step into it or interact with it um, in an electoral way, in, in a representation way, right? Like um, if we think of this, uh, our, our government as a sort of a social contract situation, right? Where they exist with the consent of the governed. Well, that simply can't be the case uh, based on this sort of um, electoral rigging that we are seeing uh, both in terms of the gerrymandering and in terms of the voter suppression. Um, and so instead, uh, what we have here is this sort of state of other bills, like you can't talk about um, systems that make it, you know, I don't know, that have like a disparate racial impact. Like that's how I read these critical race theory um, bills. And, and in Florida, in fact, they're making it uh, illegal for like college professors who study these things to testify about them in court. I mean, mind boggling stuff. And, and, so, and so what we're having here is sort of a situation where it seems like the Republican Party is deciding, in fact, we're going to abandon democracy entirely. And in fact, any pretense to democracy. And not only that, but we're going to foreclose sort of like any opportunity to either discuss, uh, to testify, um, or to sort of meaningfully protest or reject in, in any way um, the, the rigging uh, that we're doing uh, as the Republican Party. And so I think it creates a very dangerous situation. And again, that's sort of is why uh, I think we are on the precipice of something that is worse than like an, an, a terrible armed conflict, uh, you know, a civil war between like various sides. Um, we are on the precipice of, of more of a Jim Crow style authoritarian regime, one that seems to be coalesced behind the authoritarian figure of Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, this has been an incredibly depressing conversation. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, I mean, before I let you go, and I, I want to thank you for taking so much time. I, I asked you for less time than this, and we've gone way over. But um, I don't want people to, like, go and stick their head in the oven after this. So um, no. let's talk a little bit about what what might halt this trend. And let, and let me just, I guess, I guess I'll just ask you an open-ended question. What, what gives you hope in all of this, if anything? Right. Uh, yeah, thank you. And that's a great question. And I want to thank you for having this conversation because it's a difficult one, but I think it's a necessary one. Um, and I, I was talking to uh, friends recently about this and, you know, I compared it to sort of like the the 12 step program and like admitting that we have a problem and, and y'all, we have a problem. Like this is a major problem. Um, and like now we have an opportunity to think through uh, various ways of doing something about that, you know. And so when I when I tweeted about the course in the question, you know, like obviously, like I was, you know, having a lot of thoughts and, and reflections as someone who studies this stuff for a living, right? Um, and who, who teaches about it for a living. Um, but I was honestly encouraged to see the reaction from the vast majority of people, positive reaction, um, and it's sort of an increased awareness that in fact all of these pieces. You know, perhaps like they fit together by design or perhaps they fit together by accident. I think it's more by design, um, you know, but they, they do fit together and they, they form this puzzle uh, of, of increasing danger of, uh, of authoritarian takeover of our country um, in, in a way that we haven't seen maybe since Jim Crow or maybe ever, uh, depending upon how you count it. Right. Um we have an awareness of that and we have an ability to do something about it, you know? Um, and so when, when students ask me about this, right, like my, my graduate students are, are very engaged, thoughtful people, right? Um, and they'll often ask me, well, then like, you know, what do we, what do we do? Right. Um, and, and what I'll share with them, you know, and what I'll share with you here um, is that we, we have, um, you know, a, a robust history um, of black radical thinkers, um, and of you know organizers and activists in our country, uh, and we have an opportunity to really look to their work, to look to their ideas, uh, to look to their experiences, to say you know here's perhaps like how we can keep one another safe, uh, but then also how we can create and maintain a more just society. And so the the note that I want to end with, I guess, um, is that you know we have. Um, in the sort of historical example, and there are plenty of other like thinkers and examples that we could talk through, but just to leave us with one uh, of the Black Panther Party, uh, who come up with what they you know eventually term a survivalist program, um, and that survivalist program uh, includes education, uh, it includes self defense, uh, it includes mutual aid. So that means like helping out people in your community. Um, all of those things, right, under sort of this umbrella organizing uh, that's happening with the Black Panther Party. And in fact, this happened not only within the party, but like also like across racial and ethnic groups, um, you know. And so in Chicago, they had um, the uh, the Rainbow Coalition. Um, again, like this is an opportunity where uh, where organizers from, you know, a variety of racial, uh, ethnic and, and, and class groups come together and say, you know, we can really watch out for one another, uh, protect one another. Uh, they were sabotaged, of course, by the FBI. And, um, you know, that's another conversation for another day. But we have an opportunity here to engage in that sort of community organizing, to engage uh, in that sort of mutual aid and that sort of mutual protection. Um, that kind of thing really did force the state to be better, especially at the local level. Yes, they still did terrible things to the Black Panthers, to others, but they also tried to be more responsive, you know? Um, and that's not to say that like, we should shoot for that like 
mediocre, horrible past, right? Uh, but then in fact, like this particular type of organizing is effective and the state sees it as effective. That's why they sabotaged it. And that's why it's the type of thing that we can engage in to keep one another safe and to have, you know, sort of a just, vibrant, stable democracy going forward. I'm going to throw a couple of other things out there that I have thoughts about. Sure. I, I think that one of the things that you mentioned is just is super important. It's just the recognition that we are facing a really serious, serious danger here. And that that recognition is not is increasingly echoed in the mainstream discourse. And, that, and that, for yeah. me, that's very important. Like, so Dana Milbank, he's a columnist with the Washington Post. He's very, very mainstream, very conventional wisdom. He recently wrote a piece bashing the media for um, focusing on Biden's foibles with, while not really talking about this assault on uh, pluralistic democracy. And that started a whole conversation, a backlash, of course, by you know the usual suspects of the New York Times and stuff. But that got that conversation going. I mean, it has been going. And you're seeing analyses in mainstream publications about uh, everything that we've talked about here in a way that you didn't a few years ago, I think. Um, yeah. There is, you know, I, I am very quick to lament the apparent, uh, apparent indifference, not indifference, but the fecklessness of the Democratic Party. But, sure. but let me say this, um, in the grand scope of society, there is a powerful opposition party that is well-funded, yeah. that has a lot of lawyers, um, et cetera, et cetera, that has a lot of judges, uh, that wins a lot of elections at a lot of different levels. So like that is something that is encouraging as well. Um, on a very kind of short term thing, the king of America, right? West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, <laughs> he has painted himself into a corner on voting rights. He's facing mm. really intense pressure and that's only gonna accelerate as we see more extreme gerrymandering come out of the states, et cetera, et cetera. He is right. being accused of, right now, he is being accused of, of um, betraying uh, John Lewis. And right. there's a lot of pressure going on. Uh, I think the January 6th commission is moving much more slowly than many of us would like them to, but they are going to hold public hearings early next year. As I said earlier, I think there's a lot there. Um, mm. I think that we could see the end of the pandemic, which is, would make a big difference in our political thing. And then I'm sure. also I'm also hardened by this study. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Erica Chenoweth, she did this study. Uh, I don't mm. or she did it with someone else. Um, and they, she, they found that, so she established this 3.5% rule. And it's the idea that a government cannot withstand a challenge of 3.5% of its population right. uh, going out in the streets and engaging in nonviolent resistance without disintegrating. And yeah. so she's argued that it is extremely effective historically. And um, so you get that that combination of awareness, institutional heft from a powerful opposition party, including in blue states, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the idea that, you know, we are, a lot of us, there's a lot of us on the side of good here. And we, um, you know, we'll take a lot of shit, but 
you know, there's a limit. Right. All of that. Yeah, sure. William Horton, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It was a really depressing ass conversation, but I want to thank you for helping me get through it. No, th thank you. This, this has been a pleasure uh, to be honest with you. And, and I think really does end on a, a hopeful note and point to the possibility for a better future. Um, and let's work towards that. Yes, let's do that. Thank you again. Thank you. I'd also like to thank David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Raw Story and Alternet for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall, H-O-L. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, I would like to thank all of you good people for tuning in. Have a terrific week. Try not to be a cunt, it's Christmas. Take a tip from Santa's help. The rest of us are doing our best to be jolly. So don't go looking like we swallowed a bunch of holly. Don't shout at carol singers and tell them to stop. Don't buy your presents from the old spam shop. For fuck's sake, be merry. Have another sherry. And try not to be a cunt, cause Santa's coming. Try not to be a cunt. Can't.